whether in Brentwood or Franklin or watching on the live stream this morning, I want to say welcome and so glad that you are worshiping here with us. And I want you to take out your Bible, if you would, take out your Bible, open it to the book of Ephesians, not Ephesians. That's not right. Open to the book of Ezra. <laughs> 32 weeks in Ephesians and I can't get it out of my head. Open to Ezra. We've been there six weeks. So let's, let's open to Ezra and I want to review where we've been. I want to review where, where we've been over the last six weeks. We've been taking it one chapter at a time, watching the events in ancient Israel unfold. And we've been marveling at the seemingly impossible faithfulness of God to his people. In chapter one, God stirs in the hearts, in the heart of a pagan king, Cyrus the Great, the first king of the great Persian empire, who issues a decree to allow the Jewish captives there in Babylon to return home and begin rebuilding the temple. In chapter two, it records that for us. All these people that go back home have spent some 70 years in exile in Babylon, some 50,000 of them that return and begin to rebuild. And what seemed impossible just, just a few weeks before was, was made possible by the faithfulness of God who kept his promise to them through the decree of a pagan king. In chapter three, the restoration begins, doesn't it? They rebuild the altar and they worship there around the altar. Then they restore the temple foundation and they worship standing on the temple foundation. Then in chapter four, the opposition that they fear, it comes. The enemies of God resist the work of God and the people of God, they, they lay down their tools. They forget, they lose sight of the faithfulness of God and they quit the work that God has called them to do. But, but God, God doesn't quit on them. He won't allow his work to go unfinished. And so he stirs in the hearts of men again. This time he stirs in the hearts of two prophets, his, his spokespeople, Haggai and Zechariah. And they go and deliver God's word to his people and his work, the temple work, it, it begins Again, some 16 years after they had laid down their tools. And, and as soon as they return to Jerusalem, as soon as they start swinging a hammer again, what happens? The opposition comes back. Enemies of God show up. Tatanai, the governor, and Shether, Bazanai, and other principals from the land across the river. That is pagan enemy territory. They show up and they start asking a bunch of questions. Who gave you permission to do this? Who issued this decree to allow you to begin rebuilding? The Israelites say, well, King Cyrus did. He did 16 years ago. That doesn't satisfy their enemies. They start taking down names. They take down everybody's name who's there working on the temple. They send a report to the king. And when we pick it up in chapter 6, which we will in just a moment this morning, they, the Israelites, they're, they're still working on the temple they are waiting on the response of the king, expecting the worst. And over the last two weeks in chapters four and five, we made this observation. We said that when the people of God do the work of God, the enemies of God will come against it to stop the work of God all the time and in every way. And this morning, I just simply want to add to that observation. And this is what we'll see, the big idea that'll come out of chapter six as we study it. 
Just want to add this. When the people of God do the work of God according to the word of God, the enemies of God will come against it, but they will not be able to stop it. They can't stop it. The people of God do the work of God according to the promises of God, trusting in the promises of God. There will be opposition in your life and in mine, but they will not be able to stop what God has said he will do. And we'll see that in all three sections of chapter six this morning uh, said simply the work of God is sustained by the provision of God. That is the first section verses one through 12. It is empowered by the word of God. Second section verses 13 to 18. And it results in the joy of God's people. Last section verses 19 through 22. So look at the first section with me. Chapter six of Ezra, not Ephesians, Ezra, chapter six, beginning in verse one, follow along as I read. Then King Darius issued a decree and search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. In Ecbatana in the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found and there was written in it as follows, memorandum, In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where the sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let the foundations be retained, its height being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers. And let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Also let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon be returned and brought to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shether, Bazanai, and your colleagues, the officials of the provinces beyond the river, keep away from there. Leave this work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of the house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river and that without delay. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs for a burnt offering to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil as the priest in Jerusalem requests, it is to be given to them daily without fail that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house and he shall be impaled on it. His house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. End of section one. Now, let me ask you a question. If you had been in Jerusalem on this day that the temple work began again, 
you'd just gotten there, you'd mustered up enough courage to return to that work at the temple. And just within literally hours, maybe just a few days, the, the opposition to the work shows up again. They start poking around asking questions. They start taking down your name. They send a report to the king the king of the greatest empire in all the world at this time, whom they are subject to and whom has authority over you. Here's the question. What are you thinking right about now? This is not good, right? This, this, is, this can't be good. I don't know what it is that's gonna happen, but whatever it is that happens, it's not going to be good for us. At best, we're gonna get shut down formally, At worst, we might not walk away from the temple foundation. That's what I would have been thinking. And I would have been dead wrong. That's not what happens at all. The king, Darius, Persia, he he gets this report. He takes it seriously. He he issues a decree. Go, Go look for anything that could be related to what's going on in Jerusalem. They look in all the archives in Babylon, all the treasuries archives in Babylon. They don't find anything, but King Darius doesn't stop there. That probably took some time. He he doesn't stop there. He starts looking throughout the empire. And in Ecbectana, some remote distance from Babylon, up in the mountains where there was a palace where King Cyrus had spent his first summer as king, the summer that he wrote this decree allowing the Jews to rebuild in Jerusalem, they find that decree. But King Darius, he doesn't just find it and read it. He fully endorses it, doesn't he? He writes back, Tatnai and Shether, Bazanai, I found a decree. Stay away from Jerusalem. Stay away. Let the work go. Let the leaders rebuild the temple. He, He endorses it and then he adds to it. A decree of his own. Moreover, Tatanai and Shether, you're going to pay for it. It's part of the decree. All those taxes that you collect in all the provinces across the river, all that enemy territory to the, to the Jews, that's what the Jews' mind's thinking, all the territory that is yours where you are already collecting taxes for the kingdom, you, you keep collecting those taxes, only now you take all of them and you go pay for the temple in Jerusalem, your enemy. You, that, that's what you do with that money, he's generous to the Jewish captives who have been set free and returned to Jerusalem. Whatever they need, this is in verse 9, whatever they need, animals, wheat, salt, oil, whatever they need, you go give it to them. How about daily? Why don't you show up daily, fulfill their grocery list, all that they need, whatever they need, without fail. That's what you do. And then, and then he gets strong at the end, doesn't he? This, this is pretty clear. Anybody who stands in the way, take a timber from his house and impale him on it. Just clear. Nobody, yeah, we're just catching my drift. Pale him and, and then take his house, burn it down and build a dump yard there. Just start dumping everything else there. That'll, that'll make people understand how serious I am about this. And then finally he says, do it, last verse, verse 13, with diligence. Word for diligence means thoroughly, it means quickly. Go do all that I have said and do it now. Don't delay. Now I want us to stop and think about this for a minute. 
This is a remarkable response, isn't it? I mean, it's remarkable. And I would like for us to consider what, what it is that elicits this response. And now we know that God stirs in the hearts of the kings, which he is clearly doing here. Ezra's going to say that again in the next section. But, but what is it that happens before that? What is it here that actually requires the king's involvement at all? Well, it's opposition to the work, isn't it? It's the opposition that forces the king to respond. No opposition, no report to the king. No opposition, no search for a decree. No opposition, no endorsement. No financial support. And here's the point. Not only does the opposition fail in stopping the work, it actually serves as God's means to advance it. See that? To fund it. To expedite it. The very thing that the Israelites fear the most actually becomes the thing that serves them the best. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody. The great hymn writer, William Cowper, calls this God's frowning providence. God's frowning providence. Here's what Derek Kidner says about Cowper's phrase. He says, God's frowning providence in allowing the opposition to raise the alarm to the king had not simply concealed God's smiling face. It, it had done that. But it had also given a fresh impetus to the work. How? By evoking the faith and courage of the builders and by releasing a truly royal flow of material help. To avoid the opposition would have been to miss God's provision. See, to avoid the opposition, to re- stop work and return home again would have been to miss all that God had in store for them. How many times do you and I see opposition or resistance in our life and and wonder why God is frowning on us? Wonder where his smile has gone. How many times do we sense that in our lives and, and then turn and walk away from his promises to us? When that very opposition, that dark cloud, that trouble, that disappointment, that failure, that setback, that resistance in our lives might just be the means of God's provision for us. It might be the way that God is choosing to care for us, to protect us, to provide for us. When you choose to take steps of faith by trusting in the promises of God, his provision comes in mysterious ways. Unlikely, crazy, seemingly impossible ways does. When we were trying to buy this piece of property back in 2000, this piece of property that we're on, now it it was a, a huge leap for us Land was very expensive at that time, and we were a very small group of people, about 100 families. We had a small mortgage on a house on Arnold Road in Franklin that we were using as our 
office. We were concerned about paying off that mortgage so that we could get to a piece of property, find a piece of property and buy it. We were worried about how that might stand in our way, our our ability to go and do what we sense the Lord leading us to do, and that is find a permanent location and build a more permanent facility. And in the midst of that, there was a man that walked in uh, to our offices one day and he sat down in the front room and he, and he said, Hey, um, uh, I'm here and I'm curious. I got a question. How much do you guys owe on the mortgage here on this house? We told him it was $43,000 and he sat there at that table and he wrote a check on the spot for $43,000 paid off the mortgage. Man's still in our body. I saw him this morning. God used him to provide. I don't know how he knew about that. Maybe somebody had told him. I don't know how he knew that we were concerned about that, but, but God knew and God provided the means for us, didn't he? It wasn't too long after that that we were actually looking for a specific piece of property and, and I came upon this one. And when we came upon this one, it was, it was too big, it was too expensive and the owner had no interest in selling. That lasted about six weeks, literally six weeks. He called me one day, he said, hey, come meet me out at the property. I met him out here and he said, Bill, I want you to know something. I've always known that this land was meant for a church. Thought it was our church, but it's not. It, it, it's meant for your church, and he sold it to us for $20,000 an acre under an offer he'd just gotten a few weeks before. He did. I can't explain that. I can't. What seemed impossible, insurmountable, became the means of God's generous provision for us, for you. You are sitting here today because God saw fit to provide it in a way that only he could provide it. It's true for us corporately and it's true for us personally in each of our own lives. And I need to say this because it's just simply true. I don't want us to get off on the wrong foot here. You know, God's provision in our lives is not always how we would draw it up. It's rarely exactly what we would want The Israelites, mind you, they just spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. Wasn't how they would draw it up. They've spent 16 years in Israel, nothing to show for it, but a temple foundation, not how they imagined it. God provided for them like crazy at the end of those 16 years, but you know this? God provided for them all along the way, every single step of the way, working within the hearts of kings to return them to Israel, working within their own hearts to change them so that they might accomplish his work. God was providing all along the way and he will, he will provide for you. It might not look like how you want it to look like in your life or in mine, but he will meet your needs and he will use whatever means necessary to do it. When the people of God do the work of God, the enemies of God come against it, but they cannot stop it. Look with me at the second section. I'm going to read this and then we'll make some comments about it as well. Pick it up with me in verse 13. Then Tatnai, the governor of the province, uh, beyond the river, Shether, Bazanai, and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius had sent. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. 
And they finished building according to the command of God, uh, of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month, Adar. It was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles, all of them celebrated the dedication of this house, God's temple, with joy. They offered for the dedication of the temple of God, a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. The work of the temple is finished, finally. The Israelites are successful in their endeavor and they celebrate the good word of God that has come to fruition through them. Now, what's intriguing to me about this section, the way that Ezra writes it is that Ezra, in the midst of the narrative account, okay, in the midst of telling what happened, these significant events in the history of Israel, in the midst of telling what happened, he actually emphasizes how it happened. How they were successful in the rebuilding of the temple. And the how is found in verse 14. And I would just simply suggest this to you this morning, that verse 14 is the most important verse in this whole chapter. Look at what Ezra says here. He says, the elders of the Jews were successful in building, how? Through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. Interesting. Haggai and Zechariah were prophets. What's a prophet? Well, a prophet is a man chosen by God to speak the words of God, to speak on behalf of God. And because the message is given directly to the prophet, directly by God. When a prophet speaks, it is God who is speaking to the people. It's the same thing that we believe to be true about this book, the Bible. This is the word of God, the literal word of God for us. Now, if Haggai and Zechariah spoke the words of God, and if that is then how the Jews were successful in rebuilding the temple, then I think it's important for us to know what they said. And what they said is not found here in the book of Ezra. It's found in the book of Haggai. You don't have to turn there, but I am because I want you to hear this. What Haggai said to the people of Israel how he said it, why he said it, and the effect that it had on the people. Here's what Haggai says to them. It says, chapter one, verse three, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying to the people, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies desolate? 
Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages only to put in a purse with holes. The way you're living is unsatisfying. Thus, verse 7, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I might be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Now, now remember this from last week. When Haggai and Zechariah spoke to the people of God in Israel, when they spoke to the Israelite nation, they were speaking to them at a time where the temple construction had laid dormant for 16 years. No work on the temple, nobody's laid a brick there, but according to Haggai chapter one, they have been laying bricks, haven't they? Plenty of them. They have been building their own houses instead. Talk about convicting. Haggai says to them, you, you have time to build your own houses while the house lays desolate? You have time, really? Like, you got time to do that while this house lays dormant, no construction here. The, the house that I freed you from exile in Babylon to return and rebuild, that, that house. The house where my manifest presence is made known to you, that ho- you. Your house is more important than that house. Your paneling, it's gotta get all lined up. Your paint, your paint job, that, like, your carpet, all that. That's the priority. It's convicting, isn't it? Convicting for them and it is... I would offer convicting for us. How many times have you and I chosen some other thing over the most important thing, our relationship with God? How many times have you and I chosen something even good, like a house or some personal need over over the, the best, over the work maybe that God has given us to do, over the opportunity to spend time with him over, over the, the intimacy that can be found in fellowship with him. How many times have we? How many times will we? It wasn't wrong that they built houses. And please understand that. That was part of going home. God, God wanted that for him. What was wrong with it was that they made that the priority They made that more important than their relationship with him, which took place in these days at the temple. That's where they related to God. That's where they made sacrifice and restored relationship with God. That's where they worshiped God. That's where they grew in their understanding of God and in their fellowship of God. They they knew that. But they also knew that returning to the temple to work would bring opposition. They didn't want that, so they make something else the priority. Isn't this interesting? For 16 years, not in the book of Ezra or the book of Haggai or the book of Zechariah, is there any mention of opposition while they're building their own homes? No mention of opposition. Enemies are all around. They don't like it that they're back. They're all over it when the temple's getting built. They go home and build their houses. At least nothing said about opposition to that. No, that was the easy road. And it was disobedience to God. Well, what does God do? God does what he always does. He pursues his people. 
initiates toward them. He wants the best for them. And so he sends his messengers to confront them with his message. And listen to what happens. This is still Haggai chapter one, verse 12. And then we'll go back to Ezra. This is what he says. Then Zerubbabel, leader of the people, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jozadak, other leader of the people, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, all 50,000 now, upon hearing the word of God through the prophet Haggai, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. I'll ask you a similar question here that I did in the last section. What is it that elicits the response of the people? What is it? What, what is it that actually re-energizes the work? Well, in this case, it's the words of Haggai and Zechariah. There is power in those words. Why? Because they are not their words. They're God's words. You see, the word of God has the power to change the hearts of the people and finish the work of the temple. It's the word of God that has the power to change our lives and to extend his work through us. That happens not by the power of some great leader, Haggai or Zechariah or Jeshua, or Zerubbabel, not because there are new contractors on the scene or there's been a new architectural design that everyone's excited about or new tools are now in place, so let's go back to work. No, that happens. That power gets infused by the word of God. What they needed was to be reminded that God's word is true, that his promises are sure. Why is it that we teach the Bible the way we do? Book by book, section by section. Because there's nothing more powerful than God's word. That's why. I could stand up here and try to persuade you of something. I could stand up here and try to inspire you to go do something good and right. I could do that and that would last all of about two seconds. There's no power in that. None. And it would keep us from the actual power source, from the one thing that can actually change us and can change the world around us, the one thing that can and will accomplish God's redemptive plan throughout the earth, his word. When the people of God do the work of God according to the word of God, The enemies of God will come against it, but they will not be able to stop it. Why? Because his word never fails. That's why. The last section, look with me at verse 19. I'm just gonna read this and and make a comment on it and then we will close. Back in Ezra chapter six, verse 19. Ezra writes, the exiles observe the Passover after the temple dedication, and they did that on the 14th of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers and the priests and for themselves. The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel ate the Passover. 
Verse 22, and they observed the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Syria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. I'll state the obvious. When the people of God place their trust in the word of God, true joy is the result. They are filled with joy. Nothing can steal their joy. Why? Because of its source. This is not momentary circumstantial happiness because they finished construction. This is deep joy that only comes from the Lord. That's what Ezra says here in verse 22. The Lord God himself had caused them to rejoice. You see, God has our best interest at heart. And he takes great pleasure. He delights in providing for us generously. He delights in upholding his promises to us. It's in him, his word, his work, his people, and his ways that our joy is made full regardless of our circumstances. We always ask the question, so what? And I want to give you just a minute to reflect on what Ezra has taught us here and what God has done by his sovereign hand in the nation of Israel. He's shown us his providence, shown us the power of his word, and he's invited us to experience true joy in him. And I want to give you just a moment to ask the spirit of God how you might apply any one of those things in your own life. Would you take just a minute to consider that? Now, let me close our time this way. Chapter six, it ends with the Passover, doesn't it? Passover points to who? Who's it point to? Jesus. And Passover is the meal that he celebrates with his disciples on the evening before his death where he takes bread and he breaks it, takes the wine and he offers it. Symbolic of his body, which will be broken the next day, his blood, which will be poured out the next day for them. And of course, later that night, the opposition comes. The enemies of God, Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious leaders, the temple guard, they come, they arrest him in the garden of Gethsemane. They try him the next morning and then they kill him thinking that they are putting an end, a stop to the work of God. But it doesn't. It can't. Not only does the opposition fail to stop it, but it actually serves to advance it, to propel God's mission for all people forward. His purpose, literally to fulfill his purpose through his son to save us. We stand here, we are here today because God generously provided for us through his son.
and we will be standing with him in eternity because Jesus Christ is coming again. That, men and women, cannot be stopped. Father, thank you for the incredible truth that is your word. Fulfilled promises, promises extended that will be fulfilled again. You are sovereign, you are in control. Your divine providence is at work. And in it, may we be a people who are faithful and obedient to what you call us to. The work that you invite us into, to proclaim you, to help others grow in you, to give our lives away, that is worth it. And may we be a people who are sustained by your generous provision. A people who are empowered by your words to us. May we be faithful and may we find the true joy that is only found in you, your work, your word, and your ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.